Dr. Heckle is sponsored by Comma Comedians. Comma Comedians is a comedy collective based in Memphis, Tennessee, that run free comedy shows all across Bluff City. For more information, follow Comma Comedians on Facebook or Instagram. That's at Comma, C-O-M-M-A, Comedians. Proud sponsor of Dr. Heckle. The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. My, my sister said recently she was uh, in a harvester, which is probably the equivalent mm. of, what, what, what did we say? The equivalent of a cr- cracker barrel? Yeah, yeah. A slightly more classier, if that's possible. Okay, a slightly classier <laughs> cracker barrel. What are you trying to say about cracker barrel? <laughs> <laughs> and there were three tarot card readers who were in the corner all touting their wares and she couldn't understand why all three would be there at once competing first of all in a harvester but then all in the same harvester competing for business because they were charging like 40 pounds or something jeez (laughs) oh man (laughs) i don't know what 40 pounds is in real money but it sounds like a lot it's about 50 52 53 dollars really yeah wow I, I, I have any doubts about like a tarot card reader or a fortune teller who will require your ID with your credit card. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. <laughs> I like that. Welcome to Dr. Heckle, the science communication podcast that ain't my fault that I'm out here getting loose. Gotta blame it on the goose gotta blame it on my juice baby on today's episode resistance to a last line antibiotic crossfit requesting a retraction and the reality show catalog of gene simmons welcome to dr heckle the science communication podcast with as much chance of success as facebook's new cryptocurrency with me on the show today with a bachelor's in design arts from memphis college of art graphic designer elliot boyette and with a partially completed writing and directing certificate from Watkins College of Art and Design and Na- from in Nashville, his fourth appearance on the show, comedian Charlie McMullen. Welcome back. Hey, everybody. So, uh, first of all, it's, it's all illustration today. So, as well as being a comedian, you're an illustrator, Charlie. And uh, Elliot has come on here today to talk about a uh, comic anthology, uh, Paper Cuts comic anthology. Uh, can you tell us what the project is and, and what your involvement in it was? Yeah, the um, Paper Cuts comic anthology is a group of about 15, 16 artists who've come together to make a uh, one single volume of about 13 stories. So ranging from uh, like all over the place. There's like Velociraptor moms. That's all that's a story. There's uh, My story is about a fast food cult in the post-apocalyptic world. Uh, oh, nice. And there's a there's one that's a standout that's a uh, a man with T Rex heads for hands. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but really, what we're trying to do is was we're raising money on Kickstarter right now to uh, fund a print run of it. So the so the it's ready to go. The the comic is made. Yes. And it features twelve Memphis artists. Or? Uh, there's there's sixteen artists all together, and I think. 13 or 14 of them are connected to Memphis in some kind of way. Yeah. Gotcha. 
yeah, a lot of us went to Memphis College of Art and met. That's where the whole idea for the thing started. Um, and we got a couple other friends along the way. Nice. Uh, tell us about this uh, fast food cult in the post-apocalyptic land. What was it? What was the idea behind that story? I think um, when I came up with the idea, I was watching a lot of uh, post-apocalyptic movies. You know, Mad Max and uh, like a boy and his dog, and all, all kinds of weird. Just you know, the whole, the whole world's destroyed, and let's find out what's going to happen. Uh, and I think the new Mad Max came out about that time, and uh, I was like, let me do that. Let me have a protagonist that's kind of like inspired by the, the 80s action movies of like like Sigourney Weaver's char- kind of character um, or like Sarah Connor or something in Terminator and let's uh, let's see let's see where that goes and I just wanted to kind of be like a vehicle for telling it's mostly a comedy in this weird world it's like a uh, there's mutants and there's uh, deranged people um, and uh, and it's really just like the main character trying to survive and just dealing with everything around her um, including this, this idiot that tags along with her and she has to kind of, she's trying to save his life and he's just completely stupid. And, and they, have, they have to take refuge at a nearby fast food restaurant. Um, that's eerily operational. It's it, it, everything's. Okay. So, so, yeah. so everything in this post-apocalyptic world has fallen apart apart from this fast food yeah. restaurant. Yeah. There's a, he's like, hey, we need somebody to help. Can somebody help? He's like, Welcome. Can I take your orders? Mm-hmm. I know. <laughs> this guy's bleeding on the floor. What are you going to do? Um, and uh, it, it's just, I don't know. These people worship a giant star, which is the mascot of the restaurant. It's kind of like a Hardee's, you know, knockoff <laughs> place. And, uh, uh, you know, there's a guy that prays to an altar. It's the drive through intercom. Um, and, uh, you know, there's still a lot of stuff like that. So it's a, it's kind of like a lighthearted. Uh, are most of the comics in the anthology lighthearted, or is there a, is there some more serious material? Uh, a lot of them are lighthearted. Some of them, so so you know, mine's kind of like comedy, and then others are ones about dealing with like a breakup and like sort of moving on beyond that, and like you know that whole arc um, of finding yourself. And then another one in, is about um, like a caveman or like like 40,000 years ago, there's two guys fighting a mammoth and it's like an intro to like a larger story that he's working on. And, um, and then one's like a, an aging wrestler remembering the, like the exact incident that got him into pro wrestling. Oh, yeah. It's like a memory from like the (laughs) sixties and like in a diner and some place in Louisiana. It's pretty great. So I'm, what, I'm, sure you don't, Memphis. I'm sure you don't name Jerry Lawler, but people are going to form their own theories. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <A> biography. <laughs> Letter to the editor in the back, yeah. So, uh, so Charlie, like, um, what got you into illustration? Why, why were you also uh, drawn to illustration much as you were drawn to comedy? It was just always the easiest class, like in middle school and high school. Uh, it's just something I always wanted to, it, it, it was just to avoid work. Like, you know what I mean? Cause when you do something you enjoy, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like work. And I was always looking for a way to, uh, to make a living on it. Uh, art schools do not like cartoons is what I found out. <laughs> I went to, uh, I went to the art Institute of Colorado in Denver. And, uh, I, this was when I was uh, working on my comic strip, the men from Cyclopolis, which ran for a little while. You can still find it online sometimes. But uh, one of my professors uh, used to teach Matt Stone, 
co-creator South Park. And he's like, he was always drawing cartoons as well. And he's like, and look at him now. And I'm like, well, how did he do in class? He's like, he flunked out of this school. <laughs> <laughs> we, we don't draw cartoons in this school, you know. <laughs> and much like Matt Stone, did you flunk out of that school? Uh, yeah, and two more, just because <laughs> just because when I do something, I do it right. You know? So you're three times as successful as Matt Stone in that regard. You, you can look at it that way. <laughs> sure. No, like at a, at a certain point, doing doing cartoons became the uh, the defiant thing to do in the face of like a lot of art society arbitrary cliches. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like because uh, when you do cartoons and comic books. Uh, a lot of people say, well, that you ever think about doing real art? That twists like a knife in your craw. You ever get that? <laughs> you ever think about, oh, oh, yeah, you do some pretty cool stuff. I'm, I'm more like for like a painter or something. Yeah. 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 Do you ever think of doing more than doodles? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Like if there are any illustrators who heard that, I should have said D word. That's a that's a bad word. Yeah. yeah. No, I've definitely gotten that. Like, um, uh, oh, you do art? I'm like, oh, yeah, you're some. Oh, cartoons. Uh, oh. So derisive. Yeah. <laughs> I hate that. One of my most rewarding experiences ever as a comedian was uh, last September in Austin, Texas. I was at the Altercation Comedy Festival. And one of the headliners was Brian Posehn, mm. who uh, has written a number of, of comic books. He wrote a lot of Deadpool comic books between the first and second movie uh, and before, like just a ton of it. And I was able to watch him watch me because I performed after him and he hung out in the balcony after his show. So I, I was able to see him watch me. And afterwards, like I went uh, to my car and got a goon anthology, uh, which had a story that he wrote. And because uh, I was wanting to sign it. So I got it, went back up to the green room and I was just kind of hovering, like not wanting to interrupt. You know how you, sometimes you do <laughs> yeah. that? So I was hovering for a while, and then when he finally like made eye contact with me, he just looked down. And he said, "Yeah, I saw it as soon as you walked." <laughs> and I said, "Would you mind?" He goes, "No, it's fine. There's no cool way to do this." <laughs> so he signed the page that his story started on, and uh, super nice guy. Like he told me like which jokes of mine he really liked. Oh, that's good. Uh, which ones? Like he had suggestions for the ones that he thought could uh, could do better. Could do better. That's pretty dope. Great guy. Good comic man. book people are the are the greatest people. I mean, they're they're the definition of like not just not bothering anyone while they pursue their art. You know what I mean? Because drawing, all you need is ink and paper to start with. So uh, the way I'm going to link this into uh, science in some ways, uh, medical illustration has been a profession almost as long as uh, medicine has been a profession. People have needed to uh, have drawings or uh, representations that they can work from. So uh, there are some examples from early Persian, Chinese, and Egyptian civilization. But the, uh, the time in which medical illustration basically started was in uh, around 400 BC with uh, Hippocrates, uh, the uh, Greek um, philosopher, uh, philosopher like slash philosopher. physician yeah. who started keep, was the first one to insist on keeping uh, in, insane records of every single patient that he saw, what their symptoms were, what the treatments were, uh, whether it worked or not, what their symptoms developed into. He was the first and last philosophization because people couldn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> See, was he the one that did the Hippocratic Oath? Uh, the Hippocratic Oath yeah. is based, yeah, based mm -hmm. off him. And uh, then in the Roman era, uh, things pushed forward even more with uh, Galen because 
whilst Hippocrates was able to, uh, you know, do a lot and uh, they, and illustration began from animal dissections, human dissections was outlawed in the Greek world. And it wasn't until uh, Galen when human dissections were first permitted. And, uh, and then uh, medical illustration moved forward a bit further. Uh, but after that, uh, you stopped getting human dissections again. So it wasn't until the Renaissance era with uh, Andreas Vesalius and Leonardo da Vinci who start, started producing uh, exquisitely detailed medical drawings. And, uh, and then obviously in the modern context, now you use computerized tools. Like, there, there are still medical illustrators employed today whose whole job is uh, to provide representations of either, you know, certain tissue types or certain uh, medical procedures, et cetera. So it's that still- was, That was Da Vinci's passion. I mean, Monday through Friday, nine to five, he still did immortal works of art, but really it was all about the medical illustrations. <laughs> mm, yeah. That's what got him out of bed in the morning, you know? <laughs> Paint I mean, the Mona Lisa, he just punched in, punched out doing the Mona Lisa, you know? <laughs> he found that in. Yeah. Have an idea for a podcast or a live talk show? Call 901-800-7608 or email info at theoamnetwork.com today and pitch your show. Dr. Heckle is sponsored by Comma Comedians. Comma Comedians is a comedy collective based in Memphis, Tennessee that run free comedy shows all across Bluff City. Some upcoming shows for the Comma Comedians are Dark Match Comedy at Meddlesome Brewery. That's on Thursday, July 25th. Comedy at Crosstown at the Crosstown Brewery in Midtown. That's Friday, July 26th. Secret show at Local Gastropub downtown. That's Wednesday, July 31st. Other shows include Drafts and Laughs at Memphis Made Brewing. That's on Saturday, August 10th. Another secret show at Local Downtown on Wednesday, August 14th. And Comedy at the Ale House at the Mississippi Ale House in Olive Branch. That's going on on Friday, August 16th. For more information, follow Comma Comedians on Facebook or Instagram. That's at Comma, C-O-M-M-A, Comedians. Proud sponsor of Dr. Heckle. This is Chrissy and Maddie, and we host the podcast Basic, about the basic human experience through the lens of two Gen Xers. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify. And right here on the OAM Network. Welcome back to the Dr. Heckle Podcast. We move on to our news item of the week. Today's article comes from CrossFit.com. I can't wait for this. And the title is CrossFit Requests Retraction of Erroneous Injury Paper. What do you think about that from the title alone? Uh, CrossFit is coming off as super defensive. <laughs> super, I would say super offensive. Are, oh, I guess offense is the best defense. Methinks the, <laughs> y- methinks the yuppie pastime doth protest too much. <laughs> is this the equivalent of not showing your tax returns? No, uh, so, so this relates to a paper that was uh, published uh, by the Bone and Joint Institute of Penn State University called uh, Likelihood of Injury and Medical Care Between CrossFit and Traditional Weightlifting Participants. So can we guess what, we, what they've done here? This, this, uh, this scientific paper basically uh, was comparing the rates of injury between a CrossFit routine and a, uh, 
traditional weightlifting routine. Types of injury? Uh, so, well, so, so this is this is where it gets kind of interesting. So they were basically they basically did this by a survey of uh, a bunch of people. Uh, in they had these surveys in, in gyms. They managed to uh, only collect about four hundred or so um, samples or people that were f filling it out. And their conclusion was so they asked people whether they were doing a CrossFit style routine or whether they were doing like a regular. Uh, weightlifting routine and collected a number of different data points. So it was a regular regular bench presses or throwing tubas into a tree or whatever the <laughs> fuck. Yeah. Uh, uh, and they claimed that uh, whilst in the two years prior to completing the questionnaire, 60% of those participating in CrossFit uh, activities reported being injured during training compared to 46.7% of traditional weightlifters uh, and that 64% of the injured CrossFit participants seek medical attention for the injury, whereas uh, that was only around 35% in the traditional weightlifting group. So uh, CrossFit was not happy about this study. Obviously erroneous. Well, so here's the interesting thing, because the the title of the cross of the CrossFit thing, and it was appeared on a, a journal called Retraction Watch because they called for the re retraction. Uh, Jesus, what a sad magazine that is to work for. <laughs> Dude, I <laughs> just twenty four seven mistakes all day long. I can do it. I I like it. It's a watchdog. I like watchdogs. It's very British to like yeah, be. Uh, it is to to be concerned with whistleblowing. Um, but one of the interesting things about this is that the. the, the the methods in this paper weren't that great. Uh, so in the survey it asked if they were performing, you know, it was whether it was a CrossFit like style, you know, it was a self-reported, is this, are you doing CrossFit workouts? Are you doing uh, traditional weightlifting? So, so people like, in what, is the, what is the distinction of a CrossFit style workout versus a regular workout? Because I've never been to a gym and if I can help it, I'm never going to go. <laughs> Well, it wasn't really the problem. One of the problems with this study is it wasn't really defined very, uh, very well. It was self-reported. Like, are you doing a traditional weightlifting? Are okay. you doing a CrossFit? Because uh, I know there's got to be a huge pocket of dudes who say they do CrossFit. They do not. <laughs> I think that I think that was one of the arguments that uh, CrossFit was making is that because this was self-reported, this isn't like they've gone to CrossFit gyms and analyzed uh, injury rates. They've just taken people that said they do. Right. CrossFit. So that should be taken with a grain of salt. Yeah, that should be taken with a grain of salt. And uh, also, uh, it's self-reporting on the injuries as well. Uh, it's it's not saying like, oh, can we have access to your medical records? See no, it's a lot of dudes who are not doctors saying, yeah, this is probably sprained. It feels sprained. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's a higher amount from the people who are like, oh, yeah, I do CrossFit. Oh, yeah, I injured myself real bad. I got to go to the hospital. <laughs> yeah. okay. Well, it's, do you really do CrossFit? Yeah, really? Yeah, well, there was a rope. <laughs> <laughs> it's something that the uh, that CrossFit has, has a history in fighting against. So there was a paper in uh, 2013 from Ohio State University that basically came to a similar conclusion with a different data set saying that uh, CrossFit resulted in a higher level of injury. Uh, interestingly enough, CrossFit hammered them on on the methods that they had used, and the the paper ended up getting retracted from the journal. Uh, and it seem and it seems like there was an admission from the lead researcher that 
the, the methods hadn't been scrupulous enough and the, and the paper needed to be retracted mm -hmm. in the end. So, so it, on, on the one hand, CrossFit has a, uh, a right to be like, there are papers that are getting published and picked up by news outlets saying that uh, people are getting injured more often doing our workouts. Right. And they are being named unfairly. And they're being named unfairly. However, they are going after anyone that like besmirches the name very aggressively. And there have been a number of news pieces uh, that, you know, have talked about how the, the people behind CrossFit are doing something aggressively. You are shitting me. <laughs> <laughs> it is a bit cultish, isn't it? I was, yeah. I was wondering, like, if Jim Jones came up to me and said, would you like to join my organization? I might have a higher chance of doing that than if, if a CrossFitter came up and said, come and try it out. People do seem to be real fucking dedicated. If you're in, you're in. Yeah. yeah. It's like the mafia. <laughs> you, say, you stop hearing from them. You know, they just disappear for a while. I'll tell you what they don't understand. Tires. <laughs> what do you mean? I mean, you, you, can, you flip it up one time, and then if you just turn it perpendicular to yourself, you can roll a tire. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to flip it like a pancake yeah, cake every time. No, no. <laughs> so just uh, two days ago, they published uh, another... Uh, blog piece on their site uh, state says uh, that says Jill Barker misrepresents CrossFit injuries and ignores fake injury data lawsuit. So basically, someone from the Montreal Gazette picked up this recent paper that has been published and not retracted at this stage. It was the one that CrossFit has a problem with. She wrote an article about it um, in which she talks about um, you know CrossFit in a bit of a disparaging light, and they have then taken that piece made their own piece out of it, uh, basically attacking her, uh, accusing her of uh, misleading the public by, uh, by talking about this paper that has uh, cited the retracted paper. So right. that was one of their arguments, that it cited this retracted paper, uh, which would be uh, something that would need to be corrected. That, it, it's a, I'm 50-50 on this because CrossFit have used the fact that this recent study cited, referenced the re retracted study as one of their like main pillars of argument for why this study is, is bad. Mm. So I looked at the references uh, or what, what the referencing information was. And it actually, there were two sentences. So it was, it was referenced twice. And... Uh, the first one was, there is no doubt that adherence to the program leads to a decreased body fat percentage, increased aerobic endurance, and increased lean body mass. So that's a positive thing. Uh, and it also cited another article that has not been retracted in that sentence. Of, there were two citations used. And then there was another one, which was studies have demonstrated that this group-based training program promotes multiple health benefits, including improvements in anaerobic capacity, cardiovascular fitness, and body composition. And again, it was two papers that were cited. So what they've, they've done here is basically, even though it was something that was uh, complementary to them, they've kind of used this technicality that they've cited a retracted study to bolster the argument that, you know, this this study is ludicrous and needs to be retracted immediately. And uh, the worrying thing is that this is a private organization uh, having a say in what academic literature is out there. 
if there is indeed a problem, there should be an you know independent panel that goes over it and sees is the data does the data hold up enough to to stay? Does there need to be a correction and not uh, reference CrossFit directly? They don't have a have a right to basically go into the academic literature and say take down this study that is uh, that is in some way detrimental to the brand. Right. Because I mean, just the four of us poked a bunch of holes in it, so like it definitely wouldn't stand up to like extended scrutiny. Yeah. Uh, the the study the study itself might not stand up right. to extended scrutiny, but it is for it would be for an independent panel uh, right. to decide. But there was like. Or yeah. So yeah. was it? It wasn't peer reviewed or anything. No, it was peer reviewed. Yeah. It made it through peer review, hmm. uh, and so the question becomes: Was one was that a correct decision? Uh, the group was transparent about their methods. Their methods might not have been very good, but they were transparent about them. And so uh, perhaps it's uh, completely reasonable for it to be in the literature as long as it as they uh, they define the. Uh, types of exercise without referencing the brand name. Right. I'm also kind of 50-50 on it because I, I do like the idea of like losers trying to look, trying to sound more impressive than they are saying they do CrossFit when they actually don't. I like the idea of them being <laughs> held accountable, <laughs> but I also don't like seeing CrossFit as being in the right on an issue. That just makes me feel unclean. So... <laughs> I think that the, the take home is, is that they, very, they do uh, pursue anyone that besmirches them aggressively right? Uh, and have filed lawsuits. Staying on brand. Yeah. You, know, you know who else does that? Scientology. Scientology files a lot, <laughs> a lot of lawsuits. Well, and I think because of the fact that they are pursuing people in the academic uh, literature and that they are pursuing others, uh, we don't know that they might not pursue us. And so for that reason, this, oh, just for this? this week, we dub no one fake news. We're not going to do it. <laughs> no, no, of course not. <laughs> I mean, I, I live in a fifth floor apartment. I don't want to get a fucking tuba through the window. You know what I mean? <laughs> no. <laughs> Have a service, project, or product you need to get the word out on? Call 901-800-7608 or email info at theoamnetwork.com and ask about our podcast sponsorship packages. Welcome back to our final section where we take a journal article from the scientific literature, explain it to our guests and see what they can explain back to us. Today's article comes from the journal Nature Microbiology. The first author is Tao He and the anchor author is Yang Wang. The, uh, this comes from the, Chinese, uh, the China Agricultural University in Beijing. And the title of the article is Emergence of Plasmid-Mediated High-Level Tigecycline Resistance Genes in Animals and Humans. So from the title alone, what can you guys pick up? I uh, had a hard time hearing anything after you said Yang Wang was somebody's name. <laughs> don't, uh, don't smile, don't laugh. <laughs> I will say it again if needed. I, I would appreciate that a lot. Emergence of plasmid-mediated high-level tigecycline resistance genes in animals and humans. Okay, I have a, I have a, I have a thought maybe. Okay. Tigecycline? Yeah. Is that, a, is that some kind of medication or some kind of... It is a kind of medication. You think about the type of medication? Tigecycline. 
It is antibiotic. It is an antibiotic yeah. for a number of bacterial infections. Uh, and the reason it, well, it was so resistance on it. And it is a it's a last line uh, antibiotic, very powerful and uh, quite a nasty one. But uh, one that should, in theory, if you've got some kind of resistance back, resistant um, strain of bacteria that other antibiotics aren't responding to, this is one that you should use. Well, if it'll clear up this mange on my haunches, I'm all for it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was a. It was, it covers MRSA and a number of other uh, pathogens. It was approved in 2005. Uh, now, you are probably aware of antibiotic resistance yes. as, yeah. a, as a concept, one of the biggest threats, not just to our, to our global health, but also to our food supply. And uh, resistance to uh, antibiotics can appear uh, in a number of ways. It can appear by random mutations that occur within a, the genome of a bacteria. I can also, um, uh, the use of antibiotics can speed this up through selection of these mutations. Uh, but also, uh, once a, there is a resistance gene uh, existing in one type of bacteria, uh, it can actually, it doesn't have to independently develop in another bacteria. Uh, you can get lateral transfer of genetic information in plasmids. Uh, so if one bacteria will have a gene uh, that is resistant to, uh, to say, chloramphenicol or one of the other antibiotics. It comes into contact with another type of bacteria. There's a chance, a low chance, but that, that genetic material can be transferred. And so then this other type of bacteria now has resistance to, uh, to that antibiotic. And so that's kind of why uh, antibiotic resistance can, it is such a threat and can spread so quickly. Um, so... There has been a rapid increase in the number of antibiotic-resistant bacteria in recent years. Uh, so there are, uh, there are bacteria, uh, resistant enterobacteria and acinobacteria uh, that are resistant to car uh, carbapenem, which is a, uh, was a last-line antibiotic at one point. And so now treatment regimens uh, often rely on these two drugs, colistin and tigacycline, as last resort antibiotics. So those are ones the World Health Organization says they are so important that you should be restricted in only until the last line. So you, you know, one of the things that can speed up through selection, uh, this resistance is overuse of an individual antibiotic. So uh, one of these two, colistin, uh, resistant genes to colistin have emerged, uh, making its clinical use a bit more limited. And so tigacycline is one of these alternatives. And uh, to date, there have only been isolated cases of uh, tigacycline resistance. So these are individual cases that were uh, isolated from pig samples from uh, abattoirs in China. So there was one found in uh, Guangdong in 2017 from a bacteria called A. baumani, which causes uh, a number of symptoms and was a problem for soldiers in Iraq and Afghanistan. And uh, there was a second sample that had this resistance to tigacycline that was identified in pig feces uh, in Shandong in a strain of E. coli. So uh, those two isolates 
exhibit resistance to all forms of tetracycline and uh, a type of tetracycline, this last line, tigicycline, it is also resistant to that. And so what this group did was they wanted to figure out why uh, this resistance was occurring. So they took the genome sequences of these bacteria and found uh, and analyzed them and found open reading frames that were associated with this resistance. So in these two samples, there's a gene called the, uh, the TETX gene, which gives this, uh, this resistance. And they found that in these, um, in these bacteria, there were two different sequences that were 85%, 94% similar to this original TETX uh, gene that gives, uh, that gives this, re uh, the res this resistance. So they looked uh, for minimum inhibitory concentration of antibiotics against engineered bacteria. So you've either got the same bacteria uh, without the gene, or you take that same bacteria, put, this, put these uh, resistance genes into it uh, in, a in a controlled setting, and then see if it's resistant to this antibiotic. And uh, they find that a single copy of that gene gives basically a 64 to uh, 128 times higher concentration before you get an effect of using the antibiotic. So it's a very large increase specifically for uh, tigicycline. And so uh, they also record, recorded with this gene being present high uh, minimum inhibitory concentrations to other uh, tetracyclines. So these two genes, they, deter they gave them uh, names, they called them TETX3 and TETX4. And then they tried to transfer that to, you know, other bacterial strains to see if, you know, it's going to confer uh, antibiotic resistance in other models. And they wanted to see if this would work in in vivo infection models. So giving this to, so they establish an, uh, inf bacterial infection on mice and then try and treat it. And they found that uh, when they used bacteria that contain these TETX genes, TETX3 or TETX4, there was a significant uh, fold difference in the amount of bacteria reduction you would get once you had treated these mice. So hmm. mice with the normal bacteria, you give your antibiotic. These specific genes, TETX3 and TETX4, if the bacteria has that, it's going to take a lot more antibiotic to e even have an effect. So what are planes falling out of the sky and we have to head for the hills? Um, uh, give it a couple of years. <laughs> Enjoy it while it lasts. Uh, now, there are many methods uh, to tackle uh, bacterial infections that uh, are being developed uh, that work on different principles like disruption of cell, uh, of, of cell walls or, um, or indeed isolation of new antibiotics using more modern techniques. But this is still, a, is still an incredible problem that doesn't have a definite solution to it at this point. And so uh, figuring out why uh, this resistance was caused could be helpful in either developing new antibiotics or uh, figuring out how much of a problem this specific type of resistance is. Uh, so they, they wanted to figure out why uh, this, I guess, resistance was happening. And so they analyzed the uh, proteins produced by these uh, genes and compared uh, first binding affinities, and they found that uh, this X4 protein 
bound to the tigacycline antibiotic uh, with a higher affinity than it did to other tetracyclines. So what they found is when they did mass spectrometry, they uh, basically looked in detail at the structure and saw a product peak uh, that basically uh, showed when you have this gene and, and this protein and this antibiotic together, there's an additional oxygen atom presence, uh, present when the, uh, when the protein is there with the, um, with the antibiotic. So basically what is happening uh, is at the 11th amino acid, so proteins made up of these chains of amino acids, at the 11th one, there is a single oxygen atom being added to form a compound called 11A hydrotigacycline. And this is what is uh, disrupting its function. So uh, they then wanted to look at uh, samples uh, so tigacycline resistance samples from across the world and compare these resistance genes. And interestingly, even though these samples were from China, the protein, the TETX3 protein was 100% identical to one that was previously identified from a bacterial strain found in human samples in the Ivory Coast in 2017 and from two human samples found in Colombia before 2014. And then also for this TETX4 gene, so that was for the TETX3, TETX4 had 100% identity with strains isolated in humans and animals from Thailand before 2015. So the suggestion is that this resistance gene isn't just geographically located, it's already spread uh, across the world. Now, uh, it's not necessarily become much of a problem yet, and um, infect resistant infections aren't necessarily on that large a scale, but this is something that will need to be monitored in case that uh, the, the prevalence rises. And uh, as tetracyclines are currently used globally in animal production for you know, uh, meat consumption, uh, this will need to be surveyed, not just in human populations, but also in animal populations. So, that so, so it sounds like bacteria is developing faster than the host bodies that they're inside now. Uh, you, you could say, yeah, you could say that it's developing at a fast rate that we are trying to combat with various drugs that we've invented. And it's a race between can okay. our ingenuity outplay right. uh, natural biology? So it is an arms race essentially between our antibiotics and the evolutionary traits that are developed in, in nature. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's like a tiny microscopic car attacking a giant bike. <laughs> like the, the bacteria are so much more advanced than we are now. Yeah, so I guess like if you had a bike tire and a pin, you put a pin in that tire, tire goes flat. Right. Uh, but then you can get this thing for your bike tire called slime, you know, which, uh, which I think it was used in like the early 2000s because I remember having it in my, in my bike and it was like if you ran over something, that would puncture your tire, right. the slime would plug it up before you, your tire yeah, would go that was flat. Like two, that was like 2005. Yeah. Uh, but then everyone realized that that sucked. Right. It made your wheels heavy and, and things like that. And so then there's some other issue that comes up. Or maybe now 
there's a spate of people slashing tires with knives. And that's another problem that your bike has to face. I don't know how, how well this analogy works. <laughs> bike analogies rarely do. Uh, I don't know. The, uh, the three and four mutations, it just, I don't know. It, it just, it seems like a disease that develops faster than the body that you're putting medicine into. Definitely faster than the body you're putting medicine into because you're, and you're effectively selecting for this because uh, the antibiotics are being used either in uh, commercial means or at, or in the clinic. And let's say most of the time it wipes out hundred percent of the bacteria, but then by chance there is a bacteria in the population that has this resistance gene. Well, now you've treated, uh, now you've treated the bacterial infection, you've gotten rid of all but, you know, this one bacteria that has the resistance. Now it doesn't have any competition for, uh, for its growth. It's going to be any bacteria that grows out after that is going to have this resistance in it. That's how you're selecting for it. So you select, yeah. yeah. So you select for, uh, for the resistant <laughs> for ones. Resistance. Yeah. And that's why it's important to finish your antibiotic courses because essentially what you're doing is you are um, increasing the amount of antibiotics in your body. But if you stop, then all the bacteria that survive past that point are able to tolerate that much antibiotics. So you've just made a super strong and, uh, bacterial population. Whereas if you continue the full course, yeah. the idea is, it's I guess, that, that you, you just a, keep hammering it so it gets everything. Yeah. So, you, because all you're leaving behind is the strong bacteria, right? And then, but you've cleared the path for them to grow in uh, to the niche that you cleared for them. To flourish, essentially. Right, yeah. Um, without competition. Even though it sucks to... So, have you ever not finished an antibiotic course because you were feeling better? Yes, all the time. Yeah, that's why I told him specifically. <laughs> like, this is, the whole thing's just been a setup. <laughs> Mail home. Elliot, we want you to finish your antibiotic courses. Yeah. This is an intervention. It's your, still. Your like mom one, called and she said. <laughs> 2016, here's the bottle. Yes, finish your antibiotics. Do something right. This is not CrossFit. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, I think you guys understand what's what what's going on with this, right? Uh, yes. My own, my own thoughts on it, uh, as as you know, I always listen to comedians like a thousand percent more intently than I do doctors. Yeah. So my most of my information on this comes from George Carlin. He used to he used to say that the immune systems that got the most practice were the strongest immune systems. So he uh, like he ordered everything rare. He, if he dropped food on the floor, he picked it up and he ate it. He drank tap water. He didn't drink bottled water. Like, uh, he said when he was a kid, like in the 50s in New York, he used to swim in the Hudson River, which was just straight up raw sewage. How old was he when he died? He was, he was quite old when he died. I don't know okay. the exact age, but he was uh, probably in his late 70s. Okay. And no major health problems until the end. Like, he was working, like, right up until the end. That is anecdotal data, though. Uh, no, but, it's but proof. I, like, he, like he, he released an HBO special the year he died. Like, he was working up until the end. So, oh, man. if he had health problems, it, it did not stop him from working. And uh, he, like, he encourages that to people. Like, don't coddle your immune system. Don't, like, mm. 
don't use disinfectants on everything, give your immune system practice and, you know, your body produces its own antibodies. I literally just heard something on this exact thing. Yeah. Um, but how there's like a tweak to that where it's, it was like the hy- the hygiene theory or something like that. Where the first idea was that, yeah, we're 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 more hygienic. We're 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 killing everything, and our immune systems aren't getting stronger. Like that, learning that memory to kind of deal with stuff later on in life. Um, but I but it was uh, I can't remember what exactly it was. But they've, they've, that was like the initial draft of it. Mm-hmm. And over time, they've kind of figured out that uh, no, you still have to be hygienic. But what it it's like, what do they call it? The old, old friends. It's like, what you need to do is you need to go outside and play in the dirt and, and do all that kind of things like that. Right. As a kid, you need to learn to, your body needs to come in contact with certain bacteria that are friendly, that, have, that are, live in a sort of symbiotic relationship with the body. And in doing so, it's not necessarily that you're like fighting off a bunch of things and you're getting really good at it. It's more so that there's symbiotic, like a symbiosis that's sure. like hidden. It's it's not proven, I think, but there is some like uh, thought that the reason behind the rise of allergies is because of a far greater, uh, you know, use of disinfectants or yeah, and parents just not letting their kids get dirty. Yeah, like, you know, there's not enough of this that. this hair of the dog approach to bacteria. Yeah, they're gonna say parenting. Yeah. Like pox parties. Oh, I, think, I, actually, I think there's plenty hair of the dog parenting. Oh, well, yeah, there's hair of the dog teaching, sermonizing, probably. All right, so uh, I think you did a good job on uh, understanding the study. So uh, that link, that brings us on to... All right, so I think you did a good job there of understanding the study. This brings us, of course, to the end of the show where I get your chance to flip the tables heavy tables and uh, tell us a fact of some kind uh, from your own personal worlds. So Elliot, first of all, do you bring a fact for us today? I did bring a fact. I'm not sure if it's from my world, but it's a fact, I it's guess. It's from the world. Yeah, it's from our world. Yeah. I realized as I was saying that from your world. Okay. <laughs> Carry on. It's um, something I came across that was interesting is that in 2012, uh, NOAA, the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, I believe, um, had to publish a statement, um, a, a very real statement that mermaids don't exist. <laughs> really? Yes. Yeah. Because of, um, I think like Animal Planet or somebody had like a sci-fi program on and it was about like a mermaid body totally washed up on shore and then a bunch of people believed it. Unbelievable. So a government, is it a government organization? Yeah. Yeah. A government organization having to publicly state that mermaids don't exist. It's part of the conspiracy, man. Mm. Yeah. That's what they want. They're out there. They're out there. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And Charlie, do you have a fact for us today? Uh, Yes. Uh, One of the earlier gigs of the band Kiss was opening for Blue Oyster Cult. And uh, one year after that show, Blue Oyster Cult was opening for Kiss. That's nice. That is a well. It's nice for Kiss. Yeah, it's an inspiration. <laughs> I mean, individually, they are not inspiring people. They're all, they're quite douchey, most of them. But I just I that's an inspiring thing for me. I uh, there was a show on in England uh, before the film actually called School of Rock. Ah, and it featured Gene Simmons from Kiss going to a school of some kind. I believe it was like a really posh school. It may have been, even been eaten. 
See, Gene Simmons doesn't strike me no. as a, a school guy. It was a, it was no. a it was a private school, I think, and there uh, the aim was to take these kids with no uh, band musical background and turn them into a band. No practical like, music experience. No practical music experience and turn them into a and into a band, and it was weird. Is this like yeah. a, this was a show? This was like it, there were two seasons of it. One in like a uh, underperforming public school, I think, and then one in it. Would, the first one was in a private school of some kind. Like, well, because Gene Simmons had his own show in America too. It was called Family Jewels. Oh, that's a great name. Uh, it was not uh, educational or uh, redeemable in any way. Okay, was it like the Osbournes? Yeah, pretty the, much. But, but with Gene Simmons, but low rent. Very low rent. There was there was a Botox incident that haunts me to this day. <laughs> oh, please tell him. <laughs> yeah, where was this Botox? It was on Gene Simmons' face. Okay, it, he was swollen like a Sharpay. Poor <laughs> son of a bitch. Oh, you mean that's not all natural? No, <laughs> oddly enough, it's not. <laughs> he had to put that makeup on every day. <laughs> And uh, that sounds like a good point for us to draw a close to the show. Thank you guys for coming on. Uh, it's been a it's been a pleasure having you. Uh, now, do you guys have anything that you want to plug? That is the opportunity that you get now. I'm going to go first of all uh, with you, Elliot. Uh, well, um, like I said before, the top Papercuts Comic Anthology. Um, so go to Papercuts Comic and uh, PapercutsComics.com uh, to go check it out and find out about us. Excellent. And you got anything to plug, Charlie? Uh, well, uh, last month, the You Look Like web series premiered on the LOL Network. I was on four episodes of that. And uh, based on that, I will be at the Comedy Store in Los Angeles on September 23rd. Oh, hey. For, uh, for Roast Battle. That's pretty great. Yeah. I, uh, I recently took a trip to LA and went to the Comedy Store for the first time just to check it out before I went there to perform. And it's the best comedy sound I've ever heard in my life. Oh, wow. So do you know who else is on the show with you? I don't know yet. Congratulations. Man. Thank you. Yeah, but you, cool. Jeff Ross will be there, presumably. Jeff Ross will be there. Excellent. Actually, well, maybe, it's, maybe he just goes to the New York ones. I'm not sure. I hope Jeff Ross is there because I look up to him a lot. Well, if Jeff that, Ross, uh, if you're listening to that, September 23rd, Charlie McMullen <laughs> will be at the, the <laughs> Comedy Store, store. <laughs> LA. Hope to see you, Jeff. I'll, I'll hug you better than you've ever been hugged in your life. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys for coming on the show. Uh, thank you, Mark. Pleasure having both of you. So, but that is everything for today. So, uh, good night. Keep on docking. Dr. Heckle is an OAM Network production, available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and theoamnetwork.com, recorded at the Crosstown Concourse in Memphis, Tennessee. Your hosts were Mark Brimble and Naraj Trevetti. Guests were Elliot Boyette and Charlie McMullen. The show is produced by Mark Brimble and Gil Worth. Music by Kip Yulhorn. Special thanks to Lauren Brimble and the Comma Comedians. Find us on our Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Or if you have any questions, comments, or would like to get in touch about appearing on the show, or topics you'd like us to cover, email us at drhecklepod at gmail.com.
The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast.